You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 14, uh, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for your blessing as we look to these words this morning, Father. We pray, O Father, that you will teach us, instruct us, and guide us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the passage we come to this morning is pretty familiar. Um, I think probably uh, many of us have heard these passages many, many times. Um, And uh, one place where we maybe hear these passages more often than not, is in funerals. Um, I've used this passage, I think, probably for about every funeral that I've uh, ever done. Um, it's one of my go-to passages for graveside services. And, um, but, you know, that having been said, you know, I would like to join the, uh, the chorus of many of the commentators who have said, you know, um, we, we need to take a minute and, and stop uh, and take the first century audience of these words into account. For oftentimes, uh, what we do is we look at these words, Jesus' words, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled, and we immediately apply them to ourselves. And it's not necessarily wrong to do that as long as we understand first and foremost what these words meant to the original audience. Does that make sense? And I think a lot of times we're guilty of that when we read a passage of Scripture and we kind of skip a number of steps and we read this passage of Scripture like it's speaking directly to us, but actually none of us were present in the upper room when these words were initially spoken. And that I think becomes really important if we're going to understand the rest of this passage and we're going to apply it correctly. We weren't there. Not, not any one of us were there uh, in that upper room when Jesus spoke these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. And we could ask ourselves, so why is Jesus saying to the 11 um, disciples, Judas now having left, Judas Iscariot, that is, 
Why is Jesus saying to them, let not your hearts be troubled? And some will say, well, Rick, that's obvious. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. First of all, they're in, they're in Jerusalem. And they realized how dangerous it would be for Jesus to go back to Jerusalem. They knew it would be very, very dangerous to go back there. There they are in Jerusalem. Secondly, Jesus has been saying, one of you is going to betray me. And we know from John's testimony that, you know, Peter, Peter wants to know who it's going to be. Peter motions to John, and John, you know, they're reclining a table. John leans back, and he asks Jesus, who is it? And we know from Matthew's testimony that this has caused so much consternation that they, they begin to ask themselves. They begin to guess the second guess themselves. They begin to say, is it I, Lord? You can almost see the insecurity. I mean, imagine being in this room and, okay, it's kind of scary because we're in Jerusalem and we know from John 5.18 there's a, there's a death warrant out for Jesus. And here we are in Jerusalem and we're all gathered here at the Passover and we're having this meal together. And then Jesus says, listen, one of you will betray me. Who is it? You imagine the shock factor. And they begin to ask themselves, is it me? Am I going to do such a wretched thing as this? And one of the things I pointed out a couple of weeks ago is that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't come alongside them and say, no, 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 no don't, don't you worry, don't you worry, Lord, it's not you, don't you worry. He doesn't say, don't you worry, Matthew, it's not you, don't you worry, it's not you. He kind of leaves them really in this state of self-examination, doesn't he? And furthermore, Jesus has said, listen, I'm going to be departing, and where I'm going you're not going to be able to follow just now. And we saw that that, you can see from really verses 33 through 38, you can see the trauma of this. Jesus says, little children, first of all, in chapter 13, verse 33, that's a, that's a, a title of endearment. He is, you know, he is speaking as tenderly as possible to his disciples. And he says, listen, a little while and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews back in John chapter 7, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And it's almost like the trauma of those words hammer these guys. And you can, we can appreciate this. If we would have been around that table, we could appreciate the trauma of this hammering us. Jesus says something amazing in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's almost like they don't even hear it. And we can appreciate that they, it's almost like they didn't even hear any of this because their minds are still on, wait a second, you're going to leave we left our fishing boats. We left the family business. You've been the center of our lives for the last three years. You're going to leave. We want to come with you. What do you mean you're going to leave? What are we going to do when you leave? It's almost like they don't hear it. And Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter says, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? It almost, you know, in many respects, he almost sounds like a child. When you, you tell a child something, the child says, no, I don't want to do this. I, I, you know, and he's already spoken to him as little children. He doesn't want Jesus to leave him. Or if Jesus is going to leave, he, he, he says, he, he goes, listen, I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, Peter, will you lay your life down for me? Verse 38, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Imagine being around the table and you've just heard from the Lord himself say that Peter is going, in a matter of a couple of hours, deny Jesus three times. If that's what's going to happen to Peter, where's the rest of this gang going to be? We know that soon they're all going to be scattered. And it's in this context where Jesus says to them, listen, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, Jesus' heart has been troubled. If you look at verse 21 of John um, 13, there we see that Jesus is troubled in spirit. Why? Because Judas is in the process of betraying him. Now, we come to John 14, verse 1, and Jesus says these famous words, let not your hearts be troubled. And the first thing I want to point out about these words is that Jesus is not just expressing wishful thinking. You know, it's like someone's in a lot of distress and you come alongside of them and probably all of us have probably done this at one point. You know, your best friend is in tremendous distress right now. And you come up alongside of your best friend and you say something like this, it'll be all right. It's going to be okay. How many times have we said that to friends? It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Even though we don't know for sure that it is. And we're just simply speaking out of probability. In all probability, it's probably going to be fine. Statistically speaking, we probably have those odds in our favor. But we don't know it's going to be okay. Do we? And see, there herein lies the difference. This is, this, this is the difference between what Jesus says and what we can say. Because when we say it's going to be okay, we're, we're relying on probability. We're relying on optimism. We're relying on uh, wishful thinking. But when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he, was, he is relying on sovereign fact. You see the difference? He can say, don't let your heart be troubled, because all of this is in his hands. It's all completely in his hands. And, he, and the antidote is right there in the verse. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's a common, there's a really popular commentator who's on uh, cable news networks who says, says this all the time, let not your hearts be troubled, but he stops right there. He just says, let not your hearts be troubled. I think a lot of people like that because he's obviously quoting a Bible verse, but he doesn't finish the verse. To say just let your hearts be troubled and stop right there isn't giving you enough. You have to finish the rest. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out to you that notice what Jesus adds in there. He, say, he says, he doesn't just say believe in God. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. And when he says believe also in me, he is for sure claiming to be God. And someone might say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's think about it. Let's just run this. Let's think about this for a moment. Would it be appropriate for a pastor to say to a congregation, believe in God, believe also in me. Think about that for a minute. Is that appropriate? 
No. I, I, I wish more people knew that. That's highly inappropriate. In fact, we could even go as far as to say, would that be appropriate for an angel to say, believe in God, believe also in me? It's just as inappropriate for an angel to say it as it is for a pastor to say it because it's a claim to deity. Yet Jesus says it, and it's not inappropriate at all. Why? Because he is God. He is very God of very God. And believing in God is not enough. In one sense, Paul makes it clear that everybody believes in God. Everybody believes in God. Does everybody believe in Christ? We could say believe in God in this generic sense where we believe God exists and God has created things, and it doesn't go any further than that. But is that saving faith? No, that's short of saving faith. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Well, to believe in Jesus is to believe in Jesus' message, to believe in Jesus' uh, uh, work, if you will, to believe in the whole gambit. Um, so see, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. But also, there's more to this verse than that. Because here in this verse, we have the remedy. We have the cure, if you will, for anxiety and stress. You know, it's a simple formula. Whenever we face a problem and we review the resources that are available to us, and if those resources that are available to us seem to be short of being able to face this problem, then we get anxious, don't we? When we look at a problem, we say, okay, we've got this problem coming, or we've got this circumstances coming, we got this family situation coming, it could be anything. And we look at the resources that are available to us. And if the resources that are available to us seem to fall short of facing this problem, then we get anxious. And that's where so many people in our society are, because, you know, what we're seeing right now is just the, 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 uh, the bankruptcy of secularism, aren't we? Secularism is completely bankrupt, and it's self-destructive, and it's it's going to be blowing, it's blowing up in its face right now. It just doesn't have, it doesn't have the, the, the resources to cope with life and to cope with life's problems. It's bankrupt. People are realizing it. We have lost the tools. If you look at how anxious we are as a culture and you compare our present hour to really many other places in the world even now or in history past. I mean, we don't live in Northumbria in 877 A.D. Someone say, what's Northumbria and what's 877 A.D.? Northumbria was an ancient civilization, an ancient um, kingdom, if you will. It's now England and South Scotland. And if we lived there, we'd probably most likely be villagers. And at any given time, these ships could show up and Vikings could crawl out of there and our whole village be sacked without any warning whatsoever. And everything that we know would be destroyed. That's some real anxiety, if you ask me. We're not facing anything like that at the moment. Yet we're, we're on, people are flat on their backs. Why? It's because we've lost all the tools. We've thrown away all of the tools. We've said, you know, science is going to save us. We've said government is going to save us. And right now, government and science are battling it out. Science has been this false god for how long? Science is going to save everything. Science is going to save everything. Science is going to save everything. And, and when I speak this way, I always want to make it clear 
Because so many have pitted Christianity against science. I'm not against science. You'll like what I did when we lost our, when we lost our power. Do you know how we kept our house warm? We use science. We have this coal stove in our basement. Many of you are aware of it. It burns this anthracite coal. What's anthracite coal? It's a, it's a certain coal that's mined mainly out of Pennsylvania. It has a really low sulfur content. And it burns as clean as natural gas. This stove can be lit in our basement and there's no smoke coming out of our chimney because it burns that clean and it burns. You cannot light this stuff with a propane torch. If you set this stuff on a steel grate and you take a propane torch and you go over it, it will not catch on fire. There's a certain procedure to get this lit. It burns that, once it's burning, it burns that hot and it requires forced air to keep it lit. There's a little fan that has to blow every, I don't know, five minutes or so. I was timing it four to five minutes. It's on about three, three, four minutes. It's on five minutes. It's off. When the electric went out, how'd we keep that thing working? We used a power inverter, one of those power inverters. I went over to, um, to tractor supply, got a power inverter and got a car battery and hooked the power inverter up to a car battery and used this thing to cycle. I didn't know how long it was going to last, but um, I'd set my alarm clock every two hours and check it out, and uh, um, it managed to keep the house warm. We even brewed a cup of coffee with this thing. Um, I will tell you, I'm not against science. I mean, I looked at this thing. I looked at the specs on the coffee pot. I'm like, it'll do it. It wouldn't do it in the basement, though. It was dropping the battery down below 11 volts. So I took, the, I took a little table, you know, those little tables you use in your living room to set up if you want to watch TV. It's a little table, and you put your, you know, your, your food on the table. I took one of those out in the driveway, a pair of jumper cables, my inverter, and the coffee pot. And this puts a new spin on drive through um, uh, drive through operation. My neighbor come out and he's looking at me and I'm standing out there with a coffee pot on the table. <laughs> he didn't even bother to ask what I was doing. He just said, are you guys all right over there? I said, it's going to be fine in a minute. Started the truck up and brewed a cup of coffee. So I, I love science. I mean, if without science, we couldn't have done any of that. But science makes for a very poor God. Science is under God. Science answers to God. Science makes a poor God. And we're living in a time right now where, you know, the God of science and the God of government are duking it out. Um, And it's really hard to tell who's going to really win this battle. Um, A lot of the things, I mean, today people just say the word science, and what that means is they want you to go along with what they're saying. It doesn't mean that it's true or false. It may be true. It may be false. But more often than not, they just want you to go along with what they're saying. Um, a lot of falsehood. We can't live like that. We need truth. And we're going to get to that here in a moment. But look at Jesus' words again. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. How does this get rid of anxiety? It gets rid of anxiety this way. When you're looking at a particular situation and you look at your resources, if your resources seem to be inadequate to face this situation, you're going to be anxious. But if you look at your resources and you clearly see your resources are up to the task, you're not going to be anxious. What is Jesus doing here? He's saying, here are your resources. Now, what trouble are we going to face that God can't handle? What trouble could we possibly face that God can't handle? 
You see what that does to your anxiety? He's not saying it's going to be easy. You know, when we get to John 16, 33, he tells us, listen, you're going to have a lot of troubles. I know that verse so well. I used it in my grandfather's funeral. I also used this text in my grandfather's funeral. I used to say to him when I was trying to reach out to him with the Lord, I said, you know, Pap, Jesus said in his life we're going to have troubles. And Pap would usually say something like he wasn't lying about that. But our resources in Christ, our resources in God, are greater than any trouble that we are going to face. Amen? Is that a life-changing truth or what? Jesus says in verse 2, and what we have here is what one author calls gospel logic. Listen to Jesus' logic. In verse 2, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, what is the gospel logic here? Well, first of all, Jesus has preached the gospel already in verse 1. What problems do we face that, are, that we do not have the resources, resources for? There are three. There's the flesh, the world, and the devil. Or we could say there's sin, there's death, and there's Satan. We don't have the resources to handle that, but Christ does. And Christ comes to take care of that. And Jesus says, listen, in my Father's house are many rooms. What's he mean by this? What he means by this is there's plenty of room in my Father's house for everyone I've come to save. When Jesus is born in this life, there's no room for him. There's no room for the inn. Um, there's the, the, it's sold out. But Jesus is telling us, you're not going to have the problem that I had. There's room in my Father's house. There are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And once I've prepared that place for you, verse 3, I'm going to come again and take you to myself. And here's the gospel logic. If Jesus is promising to go to prepare a place for his disciples, and he's promising to return to get them, to take them to where he's going to be, then he's also promising to care for them in the, in the interim, isn't he? You see the gospel logic in that? That's why this author calls it gospel logic. And from there, we can apply this to ourselves. We could and should, right? And Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. And this leads Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is a real simple thing. I mean, you can understand where Thomas is going. I mean, one illustration will make it really clear. You know, once in a while, Tammy, will just, Tammy and I will decide usually on a Saturday Evening, we'll decide, you know, we want to go get something to eat. Sure, but we don't decide where we're going to go. We just get in the car. Well, we go down to the end of the driveway. Usually it means we're going to turn route, uh, or right onto Route 8. But when we get to Route 30, then we really have to make a decision. You see, we need to know where we're going in order to know the way. Um. If we're going to go to Calcutta, then I turn left. If we're going to go to Robinson, then I turn right. Or if we're going to go to Boardman, we turn left. But you see, we have to, de we have to settle on a destination. If we're going to know the way, that's pretty simple, isn't it? And this is what Thomas is saying. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? How's Jesus 
respond to that. Verse 6, very famously, he says, I am the way. And this is one of the great I am sayings of John's gospel, by the way. Jesus says, I am, recalling the name Yahweh given to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am the way. In other words, Jesus didn't come to point us to this path. Jesus didn't come to say, listen, I've come here to show you this secret path. And this path over here, you just go down here and you make a couple lefts. You go down by the big tree, you make a right, down over the hill, through the creek, up the other side, and you're going to be on your way. Jesus has come to be the way. Does that make sense? He says, I am the way. And he says, I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Lots needs to be said about that, but just for a moment before we go any further, Leon Morris in his commentary is so helpful here, where he says, think about the faith in this moment. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life is the one who in a matter of hours is going to be hanging on a cross, who is going to die, and is going to rest in a tomb. The one who says, I am the way, is going to be hanging on a cross. How are you going to sort that out? And the one who says, I am the truth, is going to have been put on the cross by falsehood. Because to the, to the watching eye, it's not going to look like truth is prevailing, is it? While Jesus is hanging on the cross, what, is, what seems to be prevailing is the falsehood and the deceitfulness and the lies of the evil one. Jesus is executed for being a blasphemer. He's the only one who has walked this earth who has never been a blasphemer, and he was charged and executed for being a blasphemer. You see, in that moment in time, as Leon Morris points out, evil is reigning. Deceitfulness seems to be reigning. It seems, it seems that the falsehood and the, and the lies are, are reigning, not the truth. And what about the life? Jesus says, I'm the life, and... You know, in a few hours, Jesus gives up his spirit, and he's, he's in the grave. And you think about the role of faith and all that. But see, it's, it's precisely in the midst of all of that, isn't it? Because on the third day, what does Jesus do? He rises from the grave just as he said he would. He makes a way to the Father just as he said he would. All in accordance to the truth that he pronounced, and we know from Romans 6 that Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. We know that Jesus' death is our death. We know that Jesus' life is our life. The moment we put our faith, a little bit of theology here, the moment we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are taught that we are united with him in his death, and we are united with him in his risen life. He's the way. He's the truth. And he is the life. And in verse 7, he says to to, Tom, or to uh, Thomas, he said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And what do we say to verse 7? You know, does, does Thomas not know Jesus at all? We know. We don't want to say that. Of course he knows Jesus. He spent all this time with Jesus. All the disciples have spent all this time with Jesus. They got to know what he's like. In fact, they got to know better what he's like than anyone else. They were with him for three years. How many fireside chats do you suppose they had in the course of those three years? How, many t- how much time did they spend together? They could probably almost guess. You can almost hear them talk. Oh, when Jesus hears this, he's going to say this, 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 and this. And they probably get it right, just like people do. 
Oh, when my brother hears this, he's going to go, bop, 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 bop. And he hears it, and what's he do? Bop, 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 just like we said. They knew him this way. But there was a lot. There was a, there, was, there was a sense in which they knew him, but there was a sense in which they didn't know him, and a sense in which they couldn't know him until after his resurrection. But Jesus says, if you'd have known me, you would know my father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip chimes in in verse 8 with a question. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. This is why I decided this morning to look at Moses. You know, Moses desires to see the glory of the Lord. You know, this, this, um, this request on behalf of Philip makes me think of that. You know, Moses wants to see God's glory, and God permits him to see his hindquarters, if you will, putting him in that cleft of the rock and passing before him and saying, the Lord, Lord, and et cetera. But here, what is Jesus saying to Philip? He's, you know, Philip says to, to, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, I've been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, in one sense, we can understand this, and in another sense, it's just beyond us, isn't it? It's just beyond us. Tammy and I, a couple of years, I think it's now been a couple of years ago. She probably remember better than me, but we visited a church, and we, we heard the pastor in his sermon say that Jesus is the Father. <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard that, and I was like, and I thought, did I just hear that? I didn't just hear that. And there was already a couple of things about the sermon that I was a little uncomfortable with anyway. Um, but it's almost like Peter hearing that Jesus is going to depart, and then he doesn't hear anything else after that. I didn't hear a whole lot after that. I really didn't. I'm hanging on. Wait a second. I'm looking around the room. Um, Tammy and I get in our car, and we're leaving. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to drive. And I think she was kind of waiting for me to say something, which normally I would do. And we weren't even in, out of the parking lot. And she goes, did I hear what I thought I just heard? I'm like, you must have, because I was going to ask you the same question. She goes, Jesus is the Father? I said, what do you think? She goes, no. Jesus is not the Father. Here we see he is so closely aligned. Jesus says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would know my Father also. Jesus says, if, you've, you know, if, you, if you look back to John chapter 10, look at verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. See that verse there? Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is saying I'm in the Father. Jesus is saying I and the Father are one. But Jesus never says I am the Father. Jesus says I am, which makes him God. And the Father also is God. Jesus says that I and the Father are one. Of course, they're one in substance. They're equal in power and glory. 
but they're distinct in terms of personhood. How do we know that? Because they have conversations. Because the Father gives works to Jesus to do, and Jesus does the works that the Father has given him to do. Um, in a couple of chapters, we're going to be looking at what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer, where Jesus will be praying to the Father, and he will be discussing all of these things that are going on between the Father. And we know that the Holy Spirit's involved in this. The three persons of the Trinity have conversation with each other. They love each other. They're caught up in this ecstatic bond, and it is this ecstatic bond that salvation's all about. It's about inviting us to come in and enjoy this static bond, this static bond that they enjoy with each other. But Jesus is not the Father. But Jesus is so closely aligned with the Father that to see Jesus is to see the Father made visible. What is the Father like? Look to Jesus. What does the Father do? Look to Jesus. They're so closely aligned that what you see Jesus doing, you're seeing the Father doing. And in one respect, we could say the Father is doing this. Just like we would say of a company. A company is doing this. Or we could say of a CEO of a company, uh, the CEO is doing this. What's it mean? Is he actually in the trenches doing what, he, what, he, what he's doing? No. What it means is he's ordered his company to do these things. It's kind of like that. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so closely aligned with one another that in one sense, what you see one person of the Trinity doing, they're all in concert, always perfectly in concert. It's not like one's out. You've heard me say this before. It's not like one decides to go do a solo project and they're on their own. They don't function that way. So Jesus is saying, listen, you've been with me so long, Philip. Whoever's seen me, verse 9, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, verse 10, that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? This is a mystery, isn't it? If you're a believer this morning, the Holy Spirit is in you. How do you understand that? Have you ever thought about trying to understand that? How is it that the Holy Spirit is in you? Isn't it a mystery? And, you know, we're, we're going to come to communion. Think about communion. Why do we have communion? Because we have communion. You know, um, in the word communion is the word union. Get rid of the com and you have union. Communion. How is it that we have unity? How is it are we one? There's one bread. There's one cup. There's one Lord. As we're all united to the Lord, we're all united to one another. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is equal in power and glory with the Father. Sometimes the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of the Father. Sometimes the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit. He's uh, distinct in personhood from the Father and the Son. But they're one. It's a mystery. I've about as gone about as far. You can, listen, I've said this before, jokingly, you can go do a doctrinal program uh, in the finest seminary and you can sit for 10 hours or sit for 40 hours of discussion and you're not going to know any more than I just shared with you. Because if you read that literature, all that ends up happening is they just discover new words to begin trying to describe things with new words. But at the end of the day, they don't move and save your tuition because they don't move any further. They really don't. That's about as far as we can go. It's a mystery that we receive with faith. And it's a wonderful, tremendous ministry. One more thought and we'll wrap it up. Notice what Jesus says in verses 12, 13, and 14. 
He says, truly I say to you, whatever, whoever believes in me will also do the works. He's mentioned these works um, in uh, 10 and 11. And he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Boy, how these verses have been tortured out of their context. This is why it's really important. It's why I began our discussion by saying we need to first understand what these words meant to the original audience. And in this case, we need to be really clear who Jesus is speaking to. He's not speaking to these guys on TV in those big arenas because they weren't there in the upper room. He's speaking to 11 particular men who are in the upper room with him. And he says to these men, whoever believes in me, assuming that we know right now they're all true believers, that they're going to do the works that Jesus did and they're going to do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What does that mean? The book of Acts spells it out. Peter is going to preach a sermon. And in that sermon, 3,000 people are going to come to faith. That never happened once during Jesus' earthly ministry, did it? In fact, at the time of Jesus' ascension, how many believers are there? We don't know for sure, but we know that this group was down to about 120 people. Were there others scattered about? I don't know. But it's pretty small. Why? Because there's things that are possible after Jesus is glorified that aren't possible before Jesus is glorified. It's God's design that Jesus be glorified, then sends the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get into the work of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, but it's through the work of the Holy Spirit where the apostles can now speak with much greater clarity, and with the work of the Holy Spirit, now the Gospel can be presented, and it's God's design that then, in the beginning uh, of this uh, apostolic ministry, that the church just explodes. And these are the greater works that, that Jesus is talking about. I think in one sense, if we want to make application of this today, um, I think really, I mean, the conversion, um, I, I, you know, the conversion of souls is about all we could say is, you know, as you share the gospel, uh, people come to faith. Um, are these greater works than what Jesus did? I, I don't know that any of us would be able to claim that, would we? Um, but initially in the first century, um, we, we see with all these people coming to faith that um, indeed these are great and marvelous works. Now, um, I think this is a good place to stop. We made it through verse 14. Um, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words, and we thank you, O Father, for uh, this great truth, we've got all the reason in the world to not let our hearts be troubled. Well, Father, you've given us so much this morning. Father, the antidote to anxiety, the antidote to stress, and the antidote to a crisis is to believe in God and to believe also in you. Well, Father, that's why we title this sermon, Believe Also in Me. Well, Father, we believe in you, O Lord. We believe in you, O Jesus. We believe that you are who you say you are. You've accomplished what you said you would accomplish and that you are where you, your word tells us you are, Father. Uh, we believe this with our hearts, O oh, Father, and our minds and our souls. Oh, Father, we ask that you would increase our faith in these things, Father, that you would increase our convictions in these things. Oh, Father, may the anxiety, oh, Father, be 
Uh, may it be expelled as we do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.